I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. This morning, as we continue our series through Hebrews, we will hear Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon him once again in prayer and ask for his help that we may understand, believe, love, and obey his word. So pray with me. Our merciful Heavenly Father, there are many of us here who, as we seek to live by faith every day, can still be plagued by a guilty conscience. We still have fear and doubt. Have we really been cleansed of sin? We're not sure. We, we still try to, to do things to wash ourselves clean. Think, oh, if I can just work a little harder, be a little better, then the Lord will love me. I pray this morning that as we hear your word, you will purify our conscience. That you would give us a sense of peace and rest, not in what we have done, but what in Christ has done for us. So speak to each of our hearts, convict us of sin, yes, but as we turn in faith and repentance to Christ, I pray that you would give us peace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. One of my many fears, if you've been at Good Shepherd, you know I have many fears. One of those many fears is food poisoning. That is not a pleasant experience. So when it comes to handling or cooking Raw meat, I am very cautious and admittedly overly paranoid. So if I'm cooking dinner throughout the process, I have my canister of Clorox wipes and I am repeatedly sanitizing surfaces. I'm not going to tell you how many times I wash my hands. Because I'm always concerned, did, did I miss a spot? Are, are my hands still contaminated? If you come over to our house for dinner, pray that my wife is the one who cooked the meal. Because if I cooked it, I promise you it will be safe, but it will probably be overcooked and not very good. Because there's just always doubt, fear, or a sense, did I miss something? This is how life can feel sometimes with a contaminated and condemning conscience. There's always this doubt. There's always this fear or sense. Am I still contaminated by sin? Am I still condemned by sin? Your conscience is that inward faculty for distinguishing right and wrong. It gives you a, a sense whether or not you've done what is right. Now, it's not actually a, a tiny cricket with an umbrella who sits on your shoulder like in Pinocchio, but it is that innate sense that something is right or, or wrong. And it tells you whether or not you've done what is right or wrong. For examples, every Sunday... At least most Sundays, I remind my kids after the service, there will be snacks, there will be treats downstairs. You are allowed to take one, just one, so that others have plenty and you're not ruining your appetite for, for lunch. But I don't go down and monitor whether or not they have only taken one. I leave that to their conscience. So when they go downstairs, as they reach for that first snack, their conscience should be telling them, this is okay, enjoy. But if they reach for a second, their conscience should sound like my voice and be telling them, you shouldn't do this. And if they do it anyway, then with each bite, they should have this gnawing sense of guilt. This is not right. Your conscience gives you a sense of right and wrong, and then it either approves what you have done or it accuses you for what you have done. You either have peace or guilt. 
Now, everyone has a conscience, whether you're a Christian or not. Paul is clear in Romans 2 that even those without God's word have a sense of right and wrong by nature. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So your conscience is telling you whether or not you're doing right or wrong in light of God's word, which you either know by nature or more clearly in his written word. So in one sense, the, the conscience is the whole person as you stand before God and his law. And you either have a sense, I am right with God, I have kept his law, or you have a sense, I am not right with God, and I have broken his law. So I think of Psalm 24, which asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who is allowed to come into God's presence and not die? And the psalmist then answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Your conscience tells you whether or not that is you. And since the fall, everyone's conscience, if it is, is at all self-aware, will hear that requirement in Psalm 24 and recognize, that's not me. This is a problem because you were made to worship, to serve and to enjoy God forever, to live in his presence. But a contaminated and condemning conscience will tell you, you shouldn't come into God's presence because you're not clean. You are defiled. You are dirty. You are stained by sin. So a contaminated and condemning conscience is a significant roadblock to the presence of God. It paralyzes you. It stops you in your tracks when you think about approaching God because it reminds you that you do not have clean hands and a pure heart. We're all like Isaiah when he sees the one of whom the angels are crying out, holy, 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 and he immediately is overwhelmed not only with how holy this God is, but how unholy he is. And he cries out, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And it is this sense that will lead you to a life of incessant spiritual hand washing and surface sanitizing. For the conscience under sin will keep telling you, you're contaminated, you missed a spot, you're condemned. And you will live in fear of unseen or unconfessed sin. You will live with doubt, not knowing, have you washed thoroughly enough? Have you done enough? Think of my dad who grew up as a very committed Roman Catholic. And so he was dutiful to go to his priest and confess his sins. But as soon as he walked out that door, he would turn around and walk back in because he had thought of more things he needed to confess. 
He was never at peace. He never knew whether he had confessed enough or if he had confessed everything. A clean conscience, therefore, is an invaluable gift of peace. It is a mighty shield against fear and doubt. It is an enthusiastic cheerleader telling you, go into the presence of the Lord, worship and enjoy Him. And so you should desire a clean conscience. I want to be able to say with Paul, like he says in Acts 23, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And if you desire a clean conscience, then you should be asking yourself, how do I get one? Well, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews begins to explain here in Hebrews chapter 9. And he does so once again by comparing the old covenant to the new. He's been doing this for several chapters now. And he compares the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the Levitical priesthood. He begins by, again, explaining that even under the Old Covenant, referring to the Mosaic Covenant and Mosaic Law, there were regulations for worship, things you had to do to, to be part of the covenant community and participate in worship. And there was an earthly place of holiness. And in light of this, he explains that this earthly sanctuary and this system of sacrifice under the first covenant were in one sense repeatedly communicating to the people do not enter the sanctuary and system were designed to say you can't actually fully access God's presence yet remember the goal of salvation as we've learned in Hebrews is to draw near to God it is to enter his eternal rest but the old covenant regulations and sanctuary symbolically told the people this isn't possible yet so that's what he explains in verses 2 through 10 he observes in verse 1 as I said that even the first covenant the mosaic covenant had regulations for worship and it had an earthly place of holiness so in verses 2 through 5 he describes this place of holiness he's referring to the tabernacle the large tent that Moses built in the wilderness after the Israelites had come out of Egypt which We've already learned he was instructed to build as a copy, as a shadow after the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary, the true tent in heaven. This tabernacle was the precursor to the temple that Solomon would later build. And it was designed with two interior sections. The first interior section was called the holy place. And this had certain things like the lampstand and the table with the bread of the presence. But then there was a large curtain that separated this first section from a second section, which was called the most holy place. This had the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. And as I've explained at other times, the Ark of the Covenant was like the throne of God. This is where he said, I am going to descend and this is where I will meet with my people. So this was where the earthly presence of God was said to be. 
Now, if I was preaching through Exodus or Leviticus, I would take time to explain the significance of all of these things that the author is describing. What's the lampstand about? The table, the ark, the altar. But I'm preaching through Hebrews 9, and our author says in verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm not going to speak in detail, because those details aren't important for his main point. So the author moves on to describe some of the regulations for worship in verses 6 and 7. And what's important to understand here is that access to God's presence was restricted under the Old Covenant. If you were not a Levitical priest, you could not enter into the holy places. You couldn't even go into the first section of the tabernacle. There were outer courts that were reserved for everyday Israelites. Only the Levitical priests could go into the first section and they would do that day after day to perform various duties. But even most of the Levitical priests could not go into the second section only the high priest could go into the most holy place and he could only do that once a year on the day of atonement when he would sacrifice a bull and a goat and he would take the blood he would enter the most holy place he would first sprinkle the blood of the bull on the lid of the ark to atone for his sins and then he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the same lid of the ark to atone for the sins of the people this would atone for a year, and then the next year he would have to come back on that day of atonement. Now, the, what you need to understand, therefore, is that to come into the presence of God, to enter the most holy place, you needed to have blood. Now, I'll explain why next week, but all you need to understand this week is that sin is presented as defilement, as something that makes you dirty and unclean. And blood is the only thing that can wash away the defilement of your sin, that can purge you. But what's the point of mentioning all this? Well, the point, as the author explains in verses 8 through 10, is that God was communicating something to his people by the structure of the tabernacle and the system of sacrifice. Verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates. God is telling us something. And he's telling us that while this system is in place. The presence of God is, is not yet freely opened. For only priests could enter the holy places. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place once a year. The very design of the tabernacle said, do not enter. They could not yet draw near to God as long as the first section is still standing, you see in verse 8. For the author tells us this is symbolic of the present age. Israelites understood redemptive history to be divided into two ages. There was the present age and then there was the age to come. Again, for us, just think of life under the old covenant versus life under the new covenant. When the Messiah would come and he would inaugurate the new covenant, then the present age would begin to pass away and the new age would begin. 
So the, the present age, the age under the old covenant, was an age of restricted access to God. So as long as the first section was still standing, which means as long as this was God's validated system, then we could not yet fully enter God's presence. For that system could not give you clean hands and a pure heart to ascend the hill of the Lord. They were only effective in pointing you to something greater that could give you clean hands and a pure heart. And it was the failure to perfect in this way, which is why the way was not yet open. For unholy sinners who are defiled by sin cannot enter the presence of a holy God and live. Just think, if you had, a, had to go meet with your professor or with your boss and you entered that meeting and you are just covered in manure and sewage, your professor, your boss is not going to conduct the meeting. He's going to say, you need to go home, you need to get clean, and then you come in because you look and smell offensive. Well, sin is much more offensive to a holy God than the sm smell of manure or sewage is to you and me. So the way could not be open until the conscience was clean, referring to the whole person before God. For not only are you offensive to God when you are defiled by sin, but your conscience will be pointing this out to you. It will point out your contamination. It will affirm your condemnation. It will lead you like, I, like Isaiah to say, woe is me. And so the author's point is that the tabernacle and the regulations for worship made clear that the old covenant was provisional and imperfect. But the end of verse 10 is key. For all of this, he says, is true until the time of reformation. The word for reformation means the time of new ordering. It's just another way of describing the time of the new covenant which we learned about last week. For the old covenant was only valid until God inaugurated the new. And the author's message to the Hebrews and to us has been, to, to quote Bob Dylan, the times, they are a-changing. The time of reformation has come. The new covenant has been inaugurated. When did this happen? Well, he tells us in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. The incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ collectively inaugurated the new covenant. Remember what Jesus says on the night when he celebrates the Passover with his disciples and he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And there again, we have the connection of a covenant relationship that depends on blood. Pure, perfect blood that can wash unholy sinners clean. And we see that all of the blood that was shed under the old covenant system was only effective as it pointed to this greater, purer, infinitely more perfect blood. The blood of Christ. So could people be cleansed and forgiven under the old covenant? Yes. But not by faith in the blood of bulls and goats. 
only by faith in what that blood anticipated, which was the blood of Christ. So the present age, with the coming of Christ, began to pass away. The old covenant became obsolete, to use the language of Hebrews 8.13. For Christ did not enter into an earthly temple or tabernacle. He entered into the true heavenly sanctuary. The greater heavenly tent. And he did not take with him the blood of bulls and goats. He took his own blood. The blood of bulls and goats were effective only for ritual cleansing. Not conscience cleansing. But Christ's blood can actually wash you on the inside. Not just the outside. We are told that he entered once for all to secure an eternal redemption. Redemption is deliverance from slavery by the purchase of a ransom price. So what we see here is that redemption and cleansing and forgiveness are all intimately connected. The blood of Christ was the ransom price for redemption that set you free from slavery to sin. It is also the power of purification which washes you clean from sin. And so it is the source of your forgiveness, securing your forgiveness for all time. Which is why Peter says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And Paul declares, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This, Hebrews tells us, it's not a temporary forgiveness or redemption or cleansing. It is an eternal effective redemption. The blood of bulls and goats did what it was intended to do, but it was not designed to do what Christ's blood could do, which was actually atone for sin and thereby purify our conscience from dead works. So how do you obtain the gift of a clean conscience? Only as you are washed by the blood of Christ, which happens as you receive him by faith. You trust in his sacrifice on your behalf. Now, in some ways, this is harder for us to live with. It's easier to be Roman Catholic in ways and just go confess your sin to a priest and then be told, do seven Hail Marys. That's something concrete. You've done it. You see it. You feel good. Well, maybe only for a moment because then you've done something else. No, we have to trust in something we have not seen. But of something that we are told has happened. We are not asked to keep trying to wash ourselves day after day by confession. That's not why we confess our sins on Sunday morning and evening. Confession, the act of confession, is not what saves you. No, it is only trusting for all time in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. But with this new age and covenant has come a new message. And that message is enter, come, 
draw near. The way is now open. The first section of the tabernacle is no longer standing. Now some think this refers to when the temple was actually destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And that's when animal sacrifices really did cease. But even though I believe AD 70 was a kind of exclamation point in a sense on the old covenant passing away. The old covenant was already invalidated long before AD 70. For the moment when Christ died on the cross, Matthew tells us that the curtain in front of the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. And this signified that the first section no longer stood as God's valid system. The present age was now on its way out and the new age had begun. From that moment, full access to God's full presence was realized. So don't try to tell me that animal sacrifices were still valid until AD 70. No, the moment Christ gave his life on the cross and entered the heavenly sanctuary... Every animal sacrifice from that moment on had lost all of its significance. The message for you, therefore, is that the way is now open and you may enter. You may draw near to God. The answer to Psalm 24's question, who may ascend, ascend to the hill of the Lord, is first well, Jesus can ascend to the hill of the Lord. That's what Hebrews has been telling us. He entered into the heavenly sanctuary and now stands in the presence of God and sits at his right hand. He has clean hands and a pure heart. But the answer doesn't stop there. For it continues to say, you may now ascend the hill of the Lord as you enter by faith in Christ. For you enter now clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, washed by the blood of Christ. When you stand with Jesus, you may stand before God. By faith in Christ, you are washed clean from all of your sin. What David pleaded for in Psalm 51 is now true with Christ. He asked, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He pleaded, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Jesus is the yes and amen to those prayers. In Jesus, you are clean. Your sins now are as far from you as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 tells us. Kids, if... If you and I went in opposite directions and I headed for the west coast of the United States and you headed to the east coast of the United States, when would you and I run into each other? Never. I'm going to end up at the Pacific Ocean. You're going to end up at the Atlantic Ocean. We're never going to meet. I'm going west, you're going east. That's what we are told is happening with our sins. Our sins are cast one way, we are brought the other. You don't meet anymore. Even more so, God separates us from the guilt and shame of our sin. And therefore, we may come back to God. For the blood of Christ has washed us clean, opened the way to God, and proclaims, enter. But I want you to notice what the author says specifically in verse 14. 
For he says that the blood of Christ, which was offered without blemish through the power of the Holy Spirit, purifies your conscience from dead works, which, yes, speaks to your whole person, but then speaks to your sense of where you stand before God. Because you are cleansed from sin, your conscience is cleansed. It is no longer shouting contaminated and condemned, paralyzing you from coming in worship to God. But it is singing over you, cleansed and redeemed. It is bidding you to come and worship your God. For you are no longer enslaved to sin against God. You are freed from sin. We are told to serve God, to worship God. God. But this isn't always what your conscience sounds like, is it? For as the author of Hebrews will tell us in chapter 10, yes, we have been perfected in one sense, but we're still being perfected in another sense. So we still may deal with a weak conscience or at times a defective conscience. Now, I can't speak now to Every reality and nuance of the conscience that the Bible describes. But I just want to close this morning with a general explanation for how you should, as a believer, answer and relate to your conscience in light of Christ's purifying work. And the first thing I want to be clear about is that when you are cleansed by Christ, that doesn't mean now that you get to ignore your conscience. A clean conscience is not a silent conscience. By that I mean freedom in Christ is not freedom to do whatever you want. The author of Hebrews is clear that God purifies our conscience to serve him, not to serve ourselves. So your sense of right and wrong is not removed now. It's restored. Therefore, to become a, a Christian isn't to ignore your conscience. I think one of the the helpful visual lessons from Pinocchio is that as Pinocchio increasingly ignores his conscience, he actually becomes less of what he wants to be. What's Pinocchio's goal? He wants to be a real boy. He wants to be human. But the more he ignores his conscience, the further he gets away from that, which is disturbingly depicted in the scene where he starts to have donkey features. He's becoming more of an animal than a, a human. We know that grace restores nature. It does not obliterate it. So ignoring your conscience is not the answer. Even if you have a weak or oversensitive conscience. Paul talks about a, a weak conscience, which means your understanding of the gospel is deficient in certain ways. And so there may be things that are permissible for you, but you, you just don't feel right about it. Now notice, if you read where Paul talks about this, Paul doesn't actually encourage people with a weak conscience or other Christians who are dealing with people with weak consciences. He doesn't encourage just... Just ignore your weak conscience and do it anyway. He does not take the Nike approach. Just do it. No. Even though we, we want to help strengthen the conscience by strengthening our understanding of the gospel, 
Paul says, be really careful not to encourage people to violate their conscience. So kids, if, if you're doing things or you're encouraged to, to do things that you just don't feel right about, you're not even sure if you would be allowed to do it, but it just, it doesn't sit right. Don't violate your conscience. It may be permissible, but the worst thing you can do is start building a habit of violating your conscience. So refrain and then talk to your parents or, or talk to your pastors and we'll help you grow in your understanding of right and wrong. But don't ignore your conscience. Instead, learn how to properly answer your conscience. My second point, therefore, is that when your conscience is speaking conviction of, of sin, and you know that it's sin, and that you've committed sin, answer the conviction of your conscience by confessing to Christ. Like I said, a cleansed conscience is still an operating conscience. So, in one sense, when you're cleansed by Christ, you're going to become more sensitive to right and wrong than you were before. Sanctification, which means the, the promise of increasing in, in holiness, of greater conformity to Christ, means, yes, that over time sin will shrink, but it also means that over time your sensitivity to sin will grow. So, even though you maybe sinning less, you're probably going to feel worse to a certain degree, which is in one sense a good sign of the Holy Spirit's work because Jesus said the Spirit's role in our lives is to convict us of sin. Conviction is a work of salvation, not of condemnation. So when you are convicted of sin, follow that conviction like a map back to Christ. For conviction is designed to bring you to Christ in faith, not drive you away from Christ in fear. So when the Holy Spirit activates your conscience and you are appropriately convicted of sin, follow it to Christ, confess, repent, and rejoice in the forgiveness that is already yours. For Christian confession is not the act of morbid fear or doubt. It's not like obsessive hand washing where we're just not sure, am, am I clean enough? Christian confession is continually living in the new covenant blessing of forgiveness, which we've read about in Hebrews 8, 12, where the Lord says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So the only kind of sin that a Christian must confess is sin that has already been paid for and forgiven in Christ. So Christian, as you deal with ongoing sin, practice ongoing confession. And you can do that directly to Christ. You don't have to go through me. Answer conviction with confession to Christ. But third and finally... If your conscience begins speaking condemnation, answer with the confession of Christ. Now, your conscience may condemn you at times, either through the, the whispers of the lies of the devil or the deceitfulness of indwelling sin, or just because you've moved beyond true conviction and you now have a false sense of condemnation. 
Because we're still being perfective and our, our conscience will be overactive at times. So even if after you have confessed sin and you've turned in repentance to Christ, you still feel condemned and paralyzed, you feel, I'm, I'm still not sure that I can draw near to God, then you need to tell your conscience once again what Christ has done for you. This is what I mean by the confession of Christ. You're not confessing sin to Christ. You've, you've done that. Now you need to confess to yourself the truth of the gospel. For there may be some of you here that are still haunted by past sins. Sins that you've repented of, that you are forgiven for, and yet there's still days where they come to mind again and you just feel dirty all over again. What do you do in those moments? I believe you preach to yourself the message of Hebrews 9. You keep telling your heart the truth of Christ's once for all sacrifice that has secured an eternal redemption. Remind yourself that his death on the cross didn't give you temporary forgiveness. It gave you eternal forgiveness. Remind yourself that no other sacrifice is necessary. There's nothing that needs to be added. So when you start thinking, yeah, I know I confessed, I know I repented, but there's got to be something else I have to do. That's not faith. That's actually distrust in what Christ has done. What could you possibly add to the blood of Christ? That is saying his blood was insufficient. Sometimes our conscience is forgetful that it has been purified. And so we just need to remind it of what we have heard. That if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do ask once again that for those here who are in Christ, you would remind them once again of what Christ has done for them. Once for all. That he sits at your right hand because his atoning work is done. It's enough. It's more than enough. So would you speak peace to your people? For those who perhaps have not confessed sin to Christ, I pray that you would convict them. Not to condemn them, but to save them from condemnation. May that conviction lead them to Christ. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the hundredth time. Have mercy on us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.